Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dydek, and today we're talking about the body of Christ, which is the church, made up of different parts functioning uniquely. In the writing portion, we're going to be looking at windows, which are the words we write, and what kind of readers we want looking through those windows. Stick with me, and that will all soon make sense. Not a whole lot has been going on the past two weeks as far as my writing goes. Uh, I gave you kind of a sort of an update last Saturday about that. Been feeling under the weather. That really kind of threw off my schedule. I was starting to get into a groove of going to a local coffee shop and sitting down with my coffee, and I had a list of tasks to do. And then usually around lunchtime, I'd switch over, go to um, a nearby library and do a little bit more work there. But with having health issues, didn't really want to get out of the house with that. Certainly didn't want to spread it around if anything that I had was contagious. So I ended up kind of being here, and work here can be hard with a little kid who just wants to be with his dad, which obviously I, I really do enjoy playing with him a lot, but you can't just spend you know three or four hours in a row working on stuff. So as far as planning book four, I'm actually almost completely done with that anyway. Most of the things I've gotten kind of done, the last two things that I've still got left to work on are I need to print out the map for the book and start filling in some geographical details and certainly putting in towns and and, all the settlements, villages and cities and things like that. Get that all sorted out and laid out where the rivers are and all those sorts of fun things. Get that drawn up. Just crudely for now, I'm not going to worry. I do have a uh, cartographer that has helped me out a lot with the world map and with the first three books. We've gotten all the maps done already for those. For now, I'm just going to work with the sketch that I have. And then as we get closer to publication for that book, so late this year, early next year, get back in touch with her and get this thing actually kind of more professionally, definitely more professionally drawn up. If you've looked at books one and two, you've seen the maps look really amazingly awesome. And I'm, you know, really, really blessed to have found Soraya to do the maps for me. She's really good at it. And beyond that is finishing the lost art of reading nature signs. So the last couple reading sessions I've done in that, nothing really major has kind of jumped out at me as a piece of information that I want to include in the book. Still good information, but nothing that like, as I mentioned before, when I talked about the book, it's like it needs to serve the plot as well as just be a, a functional piece of knowledge. So haven't really, nothing's really stuck out to me or really jumped out off the page saying like, this needs to go in the book. So but still moving forward with those things. Beyond that, it's about time to start revisions for book three. I'm actually a little bit behind on that work. So maybe now I'm kind of back healthy again and I was able to go out this morning and, and go to the coffee shop and do some work there. So hopefully get back on schedule here. But so really kind of part of this update is that idea of like, at least for me, the writing life has been a lot of getting into a schedule, getting things to work out for a little bit, and then something happens to change it. Not really good or bad. It just, that's the way things go. You know, it was, you know, working one job and then figuring out when I had time to write and had energy to write based on that. And then I moved to a new city and took on a lot more responsibilities. So it kind of took a little bit of adjustment period to start writing again after that. It almost kind of fell off completely for a while there, especially, you know, get married, have a kid. Uh, As I mentioned, you know, he takes up a lot of time. So usually by the end of the day when he's into bed, the times he finally started going to bed at a decent time. I was so, you know, I was done. I had worked all day. I'd come home. You know, my wife would have dinner. We'd have dinner together. And then I'd kind of take him off of her hands for a little bit because she had been with him all day and, and raising him. So 
So I'd, you know, give her a little break in the evening there. And then usually by the time he finally went to bed, my brain was just was fried. So so definitely writing slowed down there. And, you know, I might be able to get in a little bit on the weekends when time kind of freed up. But did find, you know, get back into a groove. And then, you know, here we go. I was uh, found a lot more free time a couple months ago and started getting into a schedule that was working. And then that had to change and then got used to that schedule and then it changed again. And that's just part of it. And honestly, it's why the one thing that has worked for me is to come up with a list of things to do, like what I have for the planning of book four. Just so it's, if I have 20 minutes, if I have an hour, I can pull that list up and say, what was I going to be working on next? And I can just dig into it right away. I don't have to sit and think about it and try to, you know, reinvent the wheel almost every single day. You don't have to sit there and reprioritize and say, oh, well, I really want to do this, but this is kind of more, you know, it's, that's all done. So I can just sit down, open up that list and say, what's next on the list and start knocking it out. So that's the thing that has been really helpful, especially with, like I said, a a schedule that changes Every couple of weeks, it feels like, and not again, not in a bad way necessarily, not in a good way necessarily either. It's just things change life, you know, life changes and you got to kind of roll with that. And if you have more time or less time to write, you just, you figure out how to make it work. So that's been <laughs> the last two weeks have brought that home where I haven't had the time necessarily to get stuff done the way I used to. And so it was, you know, figuring it back out again. And now, like I said, now I'll kind of be able to get a little bit on the same schedule. We're still uh, still going to change some things up a little bit that are non-health related issues, but things that just to make the family work and make all these things work, I'm going to have to change schedule. And that's what happens. And it's okay. But still moving forward for sure on book three and book four, getting excited for that stuff. So let's uh, let's move on from this and let's talk about today's topics. This is the fourth and semi-final episode in this series on our individuality as Christians and as writers. Next week will be the last episode in this particular vein, then we'll kind of move on to different things. But for today's episode, I want us to look even deeper at our functions in the body of Christ. And in the writing portion, we'll be moving beyond genre and even beyond story and beyond scene to talk about the words we use. And we'll finish next week with an even more micro look. But for now, let's go to our scripture. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 again, this time reading between last week's passages. So chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Just like last week, I'm going to jump around a little bit and make some comments as we go. So let's dive on in here. Paul, if you remember, is still he's still writing to the Corinthians by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by, or with, one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So if you remember last week, uh, when we were given this one spirit to drink, that came with some gifts for each of us to use. And as we mentioned last week, or two weeks ago now, I guess, each of those gifts will look differently depending on the gift and on the person too. It's not just that you do a different thing, but your personality, your connections, your way of kind of doing things, that's going to change even within the same gift, how that comes out. So, you know, two different people aren't going to, say, perform a healing in the same way. Even Jesus himself didn't perform healings the exact way every single time. But regardless of where we came from or what gift of the Spirit we've been given, we are still one body. And this diversity is incredibly important. As Paul goes on to write in verse 17 through 20, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And this can sometimes be a difficult thing to wrestle with. Sure, on a high level, we understand that some people are good with kids, some people are better organizers, some people are prayer warriors. We don't tend to struggle with that. But remember, last time we talked, how we can begin to fall into the trap of being enamored with or valuing some gifts above others. In verse 22, Paul calls that attitude out by saying, On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And I think we all know that. So why are there then still dissensions in the church? Maybe not within one body of Christ, but you can definitely see across denominations, say, where people will put down a certain church or a certain denomination as teaching something that is wrong. Why are some people applauded, while others who still desire to do the will of God are reprimanded? Certainly, and in most cases, the desire to do God's will falls short of actually doing his will, and that's not what we're talking about here. Those cases will need to be addressed in care and love for the one falling short, as we've touched on previously. What is more concerned right now is when we look at the various ministries of the church, and we might look at one or the other and think to ourselves, or even say out loud, I don't like the way they're doing that. I don't like how pastor preached that message, or I don't like that worship song or how they sang it, or even, why are we sending missions overseas when there's so many people in America we need to reach? It can be very easy then to look at the leader of that ministry or even its workers and start to think that they're not following God's will. And we think it can't possibly be right because we are all one body and yet these people over here are doing something that doesn't seem to fit in the body. Certainly not how we would do it and not as effective as if they did it the way we think they should. In fact, sometimes it may seem to achieve the exact opposite effect of what we think it should if it were working properly. Instead of drawing me into worship, say it's driving me away. And when this happens, I think what's taking place is that we're looking at the idea of the body of Christ too broadly. For most of us, we might picture a member of Christ's body as the arm, maybe another as the hand. But I think we might need to go deeper than that. Let me give you an illustration that I'm hoping and I think might help. Imagine, if you will, sitting down to a nice steak dinner. If you're vegan or vegetarian, imagine a salad with the standard leafy greens, but also the salad has carrot or radish slices. In order to eat, you've got to pick the food up to your mouth, right? Your forearm muscles flex your fingers, gripping the fork, and your bicep flexes to bring it up to your mouth. Then your bicep relaxes again to let the utensil return to the level of the plate. Everything's working properly, right? What about when we need to cut the next chunk of steak or push our utensil through a crisp slice of carrot or radish? Then, suddenly, our triceps flexes and pulls the hand and forearm away from the body. All muscles, we're going to get in a little bit of a of biological science here, all muscles work by contracting or relaxing. What the bicep has been gifted to do is contract, bending the forearm closer to the upper arm. And when drawing food to the mouth, it's indispensable. But then suddenly the triceps does what it is gifted to do, and the forearm extends away from the body. If the bicep were to engage in its work and try to contract again, it would fight against the work of the triceps. The work of the triceps, at least for a time, would utterly prevent the bicep from doing what it was made to do. Now imagine if each muscle had a mind of its own and the power of free will. The arm might seesaw back and forth, accomplishing nothing and bewildering the head, which in our illustration here is Christ. The body would likely starve and soon die because of the fighting between which direction the hand and arm should go. To be sure, bringing the food up to the mouth is of extreme importance, and until the end of the illustration just now, you might not have given a second thought about the force needed to get the food onto the utensil to begin with, unless you commonly have very tough steak or very crisp vegetables. And if you'll allow me, can I take this illustration one level deeper? There are also balancing muscles all over your body, 
that work in subtle tensions so that your joints bend smoothly and in one direction that you don't even realize exists necessarily until one of them isn't working and your knee starts to wobble sideways when you're trying to walk. Those muscles to the untrained seem so insignificant as to not exist and surely aren't important to the workings of the body. If your local body of Christ, if the church you attend, seems to be foundering a bit, can I suggest that you first look at the spiritual gifts at work within the congregation? It may be that those with the gift of mercy are told to sit and be silent, lest anyone think the wrath of God means nothing. Or those with helps are encouraged to let people become independent and strong, relying on God instead of those around them. All those little gifts may be the balancing muscles in your body, here minimized and shut down by the bigger, more important muscle groups, even as the rest of the body staggers and collapses. As Paul continues in verse 24 through 26, But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Before we close out this portion, I want to bring out just one more thing from what we read. But God has put the body together. I think he's being serious about that. Maybe the reason your church or churches around you seems to struggle is that members aren't learning what gifts they have and seeing how it fits into the mission of their local church. Or maybe the church leadership isn't finding out what gifts are represented in their congregation and figuring out what missions they can accomplish with the resources God has given them through the Spirit by his gifts. There's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. He finishes in verse 33 by reminding us, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. In this passage, we see a working out of an earlier verse in chapter 12, verse 7, that the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. This is why I tend to think the gifts given are based on what the local congregation needs more than the abilities of the individual. In speaking in tongues, they are not meant to be spoken to the body if there is no one to interpret. Otherwise, the hearers don't know what you're saying, so how can they be in agreement? If they say amen and worship God because of the tongue you spoke, when no one has interpreted it, they are worshiping the gift, not the God who gave the gift for the common good. It is in this way that honoring the more obvious gifts, too, is worshiping the gift rather than the God who gives good gifts to all for the purpose of building up the church. And it is to avoid this false worship that I begin with the assumption that God has brought together the members of the church for a common goal or maybe a few goals, and the Spirit will manifest in those members the gifts necessary to achieve those goals. So it does not become a matter of what each individual can do per se, but focus first on the common good and what is needed to achieve it. Then see God's providence through the workers submissive to his will. I think that's about all the time we have for that, so let's turn to our writing portion. This may be the most tenuous connection I've ever come up with, quite honestly, between our devotion and writing, but that's what makes this so fun. I always love a bad segue. But what we're talking about in the writing portion today is the idea of a window pane. Our readers are sitting in their chairs in their nice cozy dens, looking through their windows at a story unfolding outside. They are kept safe from the actual happenings of what's going on out there. They are not cold in the winter, hot in the summer, or wet in the rain. They may, of course, still be drawn into the drama of it and be very vulnerable to their emotional reactions to the story. But in this sense, watching through a window is an apt analogy. The window, then, is constructed by the means we use to tell the story. 
And where schools of thought diverge is whether the window should be clear or stained glass. That is, how much does the window color what we are viewing? How much attention does it draw to itself? Many writers and readers believe it should draw none. That all the readers should get is a crystal clear pane, so all they see is the scenes of events. Some, like me, want to draw some attention to the words, to paint a more vivid picture, not necessarily because it informs the scene, though it also should do that, but because the English language is a beautiful, complex thing, and there should be some celebration of what you can do with it, how you can affect the story differently because of a very specific word choice. Ernest Hemingway is perhaps the best-known example of clear window writing. Descriptions are scarce and sparse, and he is perhaps the pinnacle of the writing instruction given by Strunk and White to use no unnecessary words. His opposite, as another well-known example, is probably Charles Dickens. I always chuckle inside a little bit when people remind me that Dickens was paid per word, insinuating that of course he would write big, long, flowery descriptions because it meant more money. But it is also true that if people hated what he wrote, he would be paid nothing because no one would buy it. So just writing sparingly or verbosely matters less than writing well. First important point. The second one is something I was given during my college days. I loved it as soon as I heard it and have worked ever since to manifest it in my writing. It's a poem by Alexander Pope called Sound and Sense, written by him in 1711. It goes like this. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance, as those move easiest who have learned to dance. Tis not enough, no harshness gives offense, the sound must seem an echo to the sense. Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows, and the smooth stream in smoother numbers flows. But when loud surges lash the sounding shore, the hoarse rough verse should like the torrent roar. When Ajax strives some rock's vast weight to throw, the line, too, labors, and the words move slow. Not so when swift Camilla scours the plain, flies over the unbending corn, and skims along the main. Hear how Timotheus's varied lays surprise, and bid alternate passions fall and rise. There is so much that's awesome about this poem, but I want to call attention especially to the last few couplets. When he talks of Zephyr, the wind, the sounds of the words are soft and flow together. But when Ajax strives some rock's vast weight to throw, notice how chunky those lines are. Certainly by rearranging a few words, he could make that flow smoothly as well. Perhaps something like this. When Ajax strives to throw some vast rock, the line labors too and the words move slow. Okay, it doesn't rhyme, but neither is the point. By making it some rock's vast weight to throw and the line too labors, he is forcing us to slow down and struggle with the reed, just as mighty Ajax does with the rock. In the next stanza, we get the counterpoint. Not so when swift Camillus scours the plain, flies over the unbending corn, and skims along the main. Feel how quickly the words move through our minds and mouths. And skipping backward a little bit, notice when loud surges lash the sounding shore, how many open mouth sounds there are mimicking a roar. In this poem, Pope is applying this idea to poetry specifically, but narrative can do the same thing. We can choose our words so that they mimic a bit of the sound of the scene, and what I try to do is slow down the writing when the character is slowing down, and speed it up when the character is speeding up. If, for instance, they walk into a room and are looking for something, or are waiting for someone to show up to talk, someone who is taking their time, I might take a little longer to describe the setting or describe some thoughts the character has. If they walk in and immediately begin talking, I won't take that time. Only describe what is absolutely necessary to get going. I have been accused, and quite fairly, of giving too much stage direction, saying specifically that a character moved one way or another or paused to take a breath. 
But I do this not willy-nilly, but because I'm trying to give a sense of the pacing of the scene, because people do pause sometimes before saying the next thing. My critics would probably say I should leave that up to the reader, and they may be right. But I know I don't do that when I read. I go along just as swiftly as the writer lets me. Am I right about this? I don't know. I'm not perfect at it, I know that. But I know I'm going to keep working and keep improving. So how do you know what's right for you? Just like the body of Christ, you need to know your ministry and your gifts. As I mentioned, Dickens wrote lengthy descriptions that readers, like me, still enjoy their length because he was a good writer and could pull it off. Hemingway probably could have written lengthier descriptions, but believed tighter writing was better. They were each gifted in the style they chose. But you also need to know your ministry. I'm going to make a couple of broad statements here to try to help you out, and as with all broad statements, you can probably quickly think of an example to prove it wrong, and I don't deny that. But here are some general guidelines to get you started. Bestsellers and short fiction tend to be tightly written. Literary fiction, epic fantasy, and first-person narrative tends toward more flowery prose. First-person narratives do just because the character's voice is going to come through as well, and part of the point of that POV is to draw some attention to the narrator. Epic fantasy does so because world-building is part of the point of it. And literary fiction is often so-called because the writing styles tend to be experimental and concise writing is not. Where you see these guidelines broken are generally because the author is very gifted in doing the opposite. As we said way back in episode 1, you need to define your audience and what it is you're trying to do for them. If they want to be led by the hand through your narrative, whatever it is, then you can get away with flowery descriptions and stage direction. If they want to engage their imagination without your help, you need to write sparingly but well to allow them to create their own world based on the skeleton you provide. For me, for now, I'm going to continue using more words where necessary to pace the scene so it plays out at the speed it does in my head. I might decide to seek traditional publishing for my next series and will force myself to write more concisely for the sake of a broader audience. By then, I hope to have cultivated my gifts to where I can do that well. I hope this has been helpful. Let me know on Twitter who your favorite type of author is, one who dazzles you with prose or who lets the events do most of the talking. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Didek and on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash danieldidek.author. Next week, we close out our series talking more about the individual words we use, focusing on a narrow band of particular words next time, and also looking at our freedom in Christ. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.